talents. So we begin in chapter 11, verse 39, and all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they would not be made perfect or their story would not be complete. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Notice verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. When your family and friends gather on that inevitable day, when they celebrate the life that you live, the one undeniable reality that they will recall is this question, how did she or he run their bell lap? I told Linda I was going to follow the bell lap through the text, and she said, what in the world is a bell lap? A bell lap is the last leg of a mile or a two-mile race where when the lead runner crosses the line for the last time, they ring the bell, thus signaling you're on the final lap. In this particular text, our author is ringing the bell. He is running out of papyrus length. He is picking up the pace as we near the end of his letter or his sermon. It is a letter of encouragement to the disillusioned and the discouraged. All that he has written previously now comes together in rapid-fire explanations and applications. He starts to get, I'm warning you, rather personal. See, the Christian race is not for the faint of heart. It is only for the radically dependent, sold out, and committed. So the challenge from the text is that we ourselves together would finish well. As we move through chapters 12 and 13, we enter the bell lap of Hebrews. Like a good coach on the side of a track, sprinting across the infield to meet his runners at strategic points of the race, Shouting words of encouragement, our author delivers the final five, the final of five warnings. His team is running on fumes, they're losing heart, they're threatening to step off the track and out of the race. They're seriously contemplating giving up and giving in. So, one more time, he passionately urges them and us to press on, to finish well, to run to the one who has already crossed that line and is waiting to joyously embrace them and us as he welcomes them and us home. Over the next few weeks, you will likely see a few pictures that have absolutely nothing to do with the sermon. I just wanted you to meet my family on occasion. I told you last week that I had three grandchildren who ran cross-country, and the last one finished up over four years ago, so I'm no longer allowed to go and stand on the sidelines and cheer for people I don't know. I look like a creeper there. 
Running the race, according to Hebrews chapter 12, is running from one mountain and to another. He uses the contrast between Mount Sinai, which is the place of the giving of the law, and Mount Zion, which is a place of mercy and grace, of forgiveness and life eternal. So we're going to just say, extract some principles on, very practically, on how we finish well. In the last three weeks, I've ministered at four funerals. At each of those, some family member rose to speak the story of the deceased. The question that you have to ask yourself is, when it's my family speaking in my celebration of life, of me, what will they say? And regrettably, the last thing is the last thing. It happened again on Friday. For all of the wonderful stories that could be told about Grandpa, it was the sorrow of the last days that dominated the description. So here the author picks up this race theme again in verse 12 by saying simply, get back in the race. They're running on fumes. They're considering hanging it up. And he reminds them that they need, they need to pick it up, they need to engage, they need to be committed again. I say that because over the next few weeks I'm going to speak far more pastorally than I will doctrinal theologically because some of us are wondering whether it's really worth it or not. As I said last week, the number one generation to depart the church are the boomers. It's not the kids. It's not the teens. It's us. Are we going to finish well? Are we going to run out of gas before we get to the end? So he says, get back in the race. Therefore, lift your drooping hands. You can always see when somebody is not going to make it as they're running and their arms are not up there assisting them in the process, but instead they're beginning to fall down like this. So he says, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. You can see they're starting to lose the strength. They're starting to lose their stability and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. I told Linda this week that one of the reasons that I ran distances rather than sprints is because you need some time to strategize. And uh, so I would usually try to run somewhere, if I was able to get a good start, somewhere in the top three or four. And I would just try to stay on somebody's shoulder. And about on the second end of the second lap going into the third, I would usually begin to raise questions in their minds. Like, are you as tired as I am? Are your lungs hurting as bad as mine are? And you go another half a lap and you go... Man, I don't know about you, but my legs are just about ready to fall out from under me. How are you feeling? You know, and you talk your way through. That's what he's saying. You can see that they're about ready to hang it. So, so how do you lift up your drooping hands? He, it, it's, this text is an exhortation both to us as individuals, but more specifically to us as a corporate body. To be alert and aware that our brother, our sister is beginning to fade. 
Their arms are sagging. Their knees are losing their strength. They're beginning to wobble a bit. They're getting out of the lane. And we, though we are committed to finishing well ourselves, are called to alertness to encourage them, to strengthen them. Or as he says in 2 Thessalonians 3, put your arm around them and help them finish well. So it's a word to us as a church to care deeply for one another. And not be so narcissistic or so self-centered that we ignore the fact that though our race may seem hard and we, we may be running out of gas, that our, my brothers and sisters may also be struggling. And God has called us to a ministry of encouragement. It happened on October the 15th of 2019 at the district cross-country meeting in Ainsworth, Nebraska. That's my stomping grounds as a kid. Megan Erickson, a senior runner from Rock County High School in Bassett, spotted another runner wobble and fall into the grass on the final stretch of the race. 18-year-old Megan had told herself long before that if she ever saw a runner in need of help, she would do whatever she could to help them. So even though she knew that she would, by rules, be disqualified and miss her opportunity to run at the state meet in Kearney, she did not waver. Putting her arms around sophomore Emma Bixler, a competitor from Neely Oakdale High, Megan lifted her to her feet and began guiding her to the finish line. But when Emma was unable to move further, Megan simply drug her across the line. This single act of kindness led to the disqualification of both girls. National track rules make it clear that when a runner provides help to another runner, both are disqualified. But in this particular case, Megan Erickson didn't care. The question for us is, are we more concerned about us and our applause and our ultimate awards, or are we concerned about our brothers and sisters who themselves are running the race and who many of them are simply losing heart. Lift up drooping hands, strengthen weak knees, stay in your lane. Secondly, do it for the team. Notice verse 14 to 17. Strive for peace with everyone. The word strive indicates exertion of energy hard work or labor. Do the difficult thing to establish and maintain peace with the people you really like. Or in this case, with everyone. And strive, labor, work diligently for the holiness of yourself and others without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, 
who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, even though he sought it with tears. Track's one of those interesting sports that, to the uninformed observer, it's an individual sport. It's like, I tried sprinting and I wasn't fast enough, you know. I tried pole vaulting and I was too fat, you know. I was like, I tried high jumping, but jumping over a chair is not enough to get you a medal. You have to find your fit, and then I found mine in running distances. It's a team sport, it's not individual, but what every individual contributes to the team counts for the team. I'm not a quitter. As far as I can remember, I only quit one time. It was my junior year in high school. It's an embarrassment to me to this day, and I'm sure I'm the only one that remembers. But we were running at St. Pat's in North Platte. And we were on the bell lap. And we got to the last 300. I was somewhere in the top four. And to this day, I have no explanation for why. I simply quit. I stepped off the track, grabbed my sweats, and went to the bus. I have no idea what happened. But what I remember is that our coach, thinking that something serious was wrong, came and found me. And he said, Rempel, what? Why did you quit? And I couldn't explain it. But he says, don't you understand? The team needed your points. Your Christian life isn't just about you. It's about us. You, you might be wanting to throw in the towel. You might want to just hang it up. You might want to say, this is the last time I'm going to that church. This is actually the last time I'm going to any church. I'm just done. What you don't understand is your team needs your points. It, it seems individual. You have your, your personal private devos, and you have your own personal private prayer life, and you're ratified by your own personal My Bridge worship hour. And, but, but the reality is, is that you're part of a team. To do that, you need to strive for peace. It's hard work. He says in Ephesians chapter 4, be diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why does he say that? Because it's not our job to create unity. It's our job to fight for unity. It's hard work. Strive to maintain peace. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. It's countercultural. It's really easy to divide. It's hard to unite. He says in James chapter 3, the wisdom from above is first pure, then it's peaceable. It's gentle. I love this. It is open to reason. It's full of mercy and good fruits. 
it's impartial, and it's sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. For the sake of the team, we fight hard for peace. And we strive for essential holiness. It is a, it is a life lived for a higher purpose. That's what holiness is. It, is. it is lived for something other than the here and the now. It is, it is being uniquely different. Be holy as I am holy, God says. It, it's, it's living in an unholy, defiled world differently because we're living for a, a totally different purpose. Remind one another that our existence here is temporary, that our life together there is forever, and we're living for there and not simply for here. And along the way, support each other. See that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. What do you need to do? You need to, you need to forfeit finishing and qualifying for state so that, so that you can pick somebody up and drag them across the finish line? See to it that no one in your fellowship of grace falls short of that gift from God. And then this one, and most people assume that this is the heart and soul of the text, and it's not. It's just it's one part. And, and see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Thirty-some years ago, I preached a Sunday night message at Indian Hills on the malignancy of a bitter spirit, its causes and its effects. And years later, I was getting notes from both coasts of people that got a copy and listened to it. I, that's not the heartbeat of the text. It's just one of the things. But as long as we're there, let me talk about it just momentarily. See, bitterness is a legitimate offense suffered, illegitimately responded to. It's not that what was done to you was right. It doesn't give it a pass on right or wrong. It's just that the way you responded to what was done to you, right or wrong, has created a root of bitterness. Or as one of my friends once said, it's like drinking a cup of poison every day, hoping that it kills the other guy. If we're going to see to it that a root of bitterness doesn't spring up, then we need to be acutely aware of our brothers and sisters and those injuries that they have received. Those wounds that have been inflicted upon them. To be concerned that, that we deal quickly with wrongs so that they have no time to fester. Jesus, or Paul says of Jesus in Ephesians chapter 4, he said, be angry, but don't sin. Righteous indignation is legitimate, but don't let the sun go down on your rest. See, the problem is if you don't deal with it tonight, then, then it, in, your, in your sleeping mind, it, it, it's finding a life of its own. Deal with it quickly. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. 
And then he goes on to say, put away all wrath, anger, malice, and instead be kind to one another, forgiving each other, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. One another, we have a responsibility to see when somebody has legitimately been injured, and we need to go as quickly as we can and heal that. Otherwise, it creates a root. And the problem with the root is, if it, it creates branches, then, then we could take my extended saw and we could trim them off. But it doesn't. It grows under the surface and it goes wherever it wants to go. Which is why sometimes sidewalks heave up and sometimes foundations develop cracks. is because there was a root growing that nobody saw. The question is, when a bitter spirit comes in, am I bitter against another or am I bitter against God? Do I genuinely believe that nothing comes into my life but what it is first filtered through His loving hands? How sovereign is His sovereignty? King Saul became horribly bitter against David. Wasted the last decade and a half of his 40-year reign chasing after someone that he felt threatened by, who wasn't even willing to take him out when he was given an opportunity. But Saul never got over it. Or King Ahab, who was so enraged and bitter against Elijah for calling out his sin and all. But the Job story is a bitterness toward God. Unfair, unjustified things happened to him. But the most unjustified and unfair thing was what his supposed friends did when they came to comfort him. You read the book of Job and it said for the first seven days his friends sat in silence. That was love. After that they started to speak. That was not love. The end result of it was is that Job became angry at God. He said he was angry at his friends, but he was angry at God. We have a responsibility one to another to see when a brother or sister has been injured and immediately... Do what we can to heal that. So much so that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you're going to worship and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering. Tie your lamb up in the neighbor's yard. Go to your brother. Make it right. Then come and present your offering to the Lord. This happened in August of 21 in Tokyo at the Olympics. Running the final curve in the men's 800 meters, American Isaiah Jewett was in prime position to finish in the top two in his heat. Unfortunately, unintentional disaster happened. Botswana's Nigel Amos inadvertently tripped Jewett from behind and the two middle distance runners collapsed on the track. Jewett said, I, I just felt like when I was starting to lift someone hit the back of my heel, and it caused me to fall. He said it was devastating, I'm not going to lie. In a remarkable display of sportsmanship, Jewett got back up and helped Amos to his feet. Amos apologized for the mistake. Jewett put his arm around him, and the two finished the race together. Amos let Jewett finish one step ahead of him. Jewett finished second to last in two minutes, 38.12 seconds, and Amos was last in the race at 2 minutes, 38.49 seconds. But where they finished was secondary. 
What mattered is that they finished the race and they showed everyone witnessing around the world an example of sportsmanship and forgiveness. If we're going to finish well, we're going to have to pick each other up. We're going to have to forgive. We're going to have to worry less about when we finish and more concerned that we finish well. And he goes on to say, refuse momentary pleasure at the expense of long-term joys. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Sexual immorality is just a momentary, a one-night, two-night stand, a six-month relationship that leaves nothing but brokenness and sorrow in its wake. He uses Esau for the example who sold his birthright for a single meal. He was so hungry, he didn't care about the legacy of the family. He didn't care about the blessing of God in the family line. He didn't care that he was the eldest in line. He was willing to exchange all of that for one momentary satisfying meal. You know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, when he realized what he had done, he went to his father. said, Father, don't you have a blessing for me as well? He's rejected. His father said, no, I already gave the blessing away. He found no chance to repent. Here it is, though he sought it with tears. You see, there is always remorse and sorrow over exchanging momentary pleasure for long-term blessing. But just tears of sorrow are not enough. He talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. There is re Tears of remorse, but not tears of repentance. Tears of repentance is a radical change of direction. It's the agony of compromise. Point number three, verses 18 to 21. Remember what you are running from. For you have not come to what may be touched, a tangible, earthly, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest. Put Exodus in the margin, Exodus 19. Or the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. Here was the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. He reminds them who are flirting with going back to the old rituals, rules, and the externalism that gave them great comfort. Don't forget what it was like. You've been running from that mountain your whole life, generation after generation. We, we can't keep the law. It was given by God to drive us to insanity, spiritual insanity. I can never live up to God's holy standard. Somebody help me. And God says, I'm glad you asked. Here's my son, Jesus. It's described as a place where the law is received. It's a mountain of terror, of judgment and death. It's described as a blazing fire. Read about it in Exodus 19. The mountain was covered in darkness and gloom and a tempest. There was a blasting of a trumpet that terrified two and a half million that were camped at its base. The voice of God when He spoke, the people said, whoa, 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 you go talk to God and come and tell us what He said. Don't let God talk to us anymore. It was tangible, but it was untouchable. 
And it was frightening even to Moses. That's what we're running from. The mountain of judgment and death. What's the whole point of Hebrews? We have a greater mountain. We're running to a more blessed thing. We have a greater hope. We are running, he says in verse 22 to 24, to Mount Zion. Notice, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. You've come to the sprinkling of blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This Mount Zion, this is, this, is, this is the mountain where Melchizedek established the kingdom of Shalom in Genesis 14. This is a place where Abraham, in obedience to the Lord, brought his son Isaac to offer him as a sacrifice. We call it Mount Moriah. This is the location where David won a great victory. He built a fortress citadel there and built his royal palace in Mount Zion. This is a place where he moved the Ark of the Covenant of God and placed it in the tabernacle there, and later Solomon placed it in the temple as a testimony to the presence of the living God amongst a sinful people. That's why they call it the city of the living God. What is God's mailing address on earth? Mount Zion. It is a heavenly, not tangible, not visible city, not in earthly. It's the one that Abraham and all of those in chapter 11 were not satisfied because they kept looking for this city whose builder and maker was God. Foundations were laid by another. And it's this heavenly city they were looking for. It's the place where there is a festival of innumerable angels. He just said in chapter 1 that this Jesus, the final word from God, is greater even than the angels, and they are wonderful. They, they are the servants of God. They are the messengers. They come from God to meet our needs, to minister to us. He said, you have been called and invited to this place where the ministering servants of God wait ready to meet your needs. You've come to the place where the born again assemble, where the redeemed are gathered together. Greater than that, you've come into the very presence of the living God who is the all-knowing, righteous judge. You've come to the home of the saints. So you say, where, where are all these 16 plus in the chapter 11 in the hall of faith? They're here. That, that we're running there. We're, we're, we're not home yet. We're, we're, we're on our way there. But ultimately, we don't, we don't want to go back to what it was before where we thought that we ourselves, in our strength, were adequate to accomplish the things that God... Because we don't want to go back there anymore. We want to keep pressing forward. And we, like them who are seated in that great stadium, that great cloud of witnesses, we, we look forward to the day when we're there as well. And, and as... The younger are continuing to run the race here. We add our voice to their voice saying, don't give up. Don't give in. Press on. Lift your arms up. Get some strength back in your knees. Stay on the track. And we do that because Jesus, who's already run the race, has already crossed the finish line. He's already there. And he's seated at the Father's right hand. 
And then he says, and to the sprinkled blood, that you remember what that was, we come in to the, to the tabernacle or the temple courts, the first thing you saw was the, was the altar of sacrifice, and they would cut the blood from the sacrificial lamb, and on the day of atonement, the high priest, that one day a year, would take that blood, he would go beyond that curtain where only it was visited once a year, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat so that with the broken law inside and the man as a reminder of their rebellion against God and their failure to trust Him in the hard times, and the great staff of Aaron are all in there, three testimonies to their faithlessness. And then the high priest would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, and God would not look on their broken rebellion, but instead He would look upon the applied shed blood, and He would cover their sins. And He said, this blood is a better blood than Abel's. Abel's blood cries out for justice. Genesis chapter 4. Cain, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the earth. What's it crying for? Make it right. Make it right. Or the book of Revelation. The, the martyrs are going, so when, when are they going to be repaid for their abuse and their injury to us? That's the blood of Abel. The blood of Jesus cries out something different. It cries, give them mercy. Give them grace. Give them mercy. Give them grace. Yeah, the harsh reality is we don't want justice. If we got justice, we're all dead. Eternally dead. Forever dead. There's not one of us that's righteous, not even one. We want mercy. We want God in His amazing grace not to give us what we deserve. And we want grace. We want Him to give us what we could never deserve. And then finally He says, run for joy. Verse 25, see to it then that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. This is His fifth warning. For if they did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on the earth, much less will we escape if we reject Him who warns from heaven. Remember at that time when God spoke to Moses, his voice shook the earth, and now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of all things that can be shaken, that is, things that have been made, that is, tangible earthly temporal things, are all going to be destroyed by the voice of God in order that the things that cannot be shaken, the things that are permanent, things that are eternal, the things that are lasting, those may remain. As a result of that, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. A strange way to end it. For our God is a consuming fire. This is His fifth warning. All five have to do with our response to God's Word. Chapter 2, verse 1, he warns us, don't drift from God's Word. Chapter 3, verse 12, don't doubt God's Word. Chapter 5, verse 1, don't defect from God's Word. Chapter 10, verse 26, don't despise God's Word. Chapter 12, verse 25, don't deny God's Word. 
My eldest granddaughter is a pastor's wife in Grand Island. Her husband is the worship pastor there at the Free Church. They have two little girls. Lucy's 18 months old. This morning, Anna is rushing around to get to church because she's on the worship team. And Lucy, who has very few words we understand, was screaming, Bible, Bible, Bible. And her mom's response as she drug her out the door is, Lucy wants her mom to read her the Bible this morning, as she does every morning. And she said, Lucy, we don't have time to read the Bible. We've got to get to Sunday school. <laughs> well, that's classic. Obviously, it meant more to me than it did to you. But. Some of us don't have time for Bible. We've got to get to Sunday school. There are so many good things I need to do for God, I don't have time to hear from God. Heed the warnings. If you, if you go back and you filter through this text, there are a number of extra weights and besetting sins that he warns us about as we run the bell lap. What are the things that are going to keep you from finishing well? One, unresolved conflict. Two, a refusal to seek sanctifying grace. Claiming to have received the grace that forgives your sins and gives you a forever ticket into glory, but refusing to allow the Spirit of God to make you day by day less like yourself and more like Jesus. Number three, an unchecked bitterness of soul. Who knows where the roots of that will go and who they'll entangle. But the first place is it's you. Number four, illicit momentary pleasures. Can't tell you how many times over 50 years someone who had fallen and failed in some way wept and said, if only I could go back. It wasn't worth it for the moment. Or remorse over failure that falls short of true repentance, changing direction of a life. Or simply forgetfulness of God's Word. He who spoke on the mountain and frightened him with his voice still speaks today. He speaks through this. You need to hear that voice? Read your Bible out loud. This is the Word of God. This is the voice of God. Or getting so attached to the things that cannot endure, the things that are only temporal, that when He finally shakes the heavens and the earth, and all of those things that are not eternal and are not lasting are destroyed. For the loss of reverence for the holiness of God. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Thus, in light of that permanent kingdom that can't be blown up like Independence Square in the Ukraine, or something else that seems so certain and sure to you in days past. As a result of that, let us offer to God acceptable worship. You see, that, that's a wake-up call to the Hebrews. Because Isaiah chapter 1, Jeremiah as well, he says, who asked you to come into my courts and trample them down? Who asked you to go through all these rituals and routines? Did I ask you to do that? 
I wanted you to bring me your heart. What's the difference between worship activity and worship acceptance? And it's the heart of the worshiper. Offer him with reverence and awe. Learn to embrace what truly matters. Let us be grateful. And then live with relentless gratitude. We all think we deserve better. We deserve more. We de- I don't deserve the hard road I'm on. I I it's not fair and all of that. No, no. What, what has God given to us? In this life, read the last half of chapter 11. It wasn't all success. There was a lot of suffering there. But it didn't matter to them because they knew they had something that could never be taken away from them. And that stirred them to gratitude of heart in the midst of their trials. Worship with reverence and awe. A few years ago, I think I said from this position that The older I get, the more prone to become a legalist I am. It's just like, over time you begin to wonder, have have we lost the awareness of the God into whose presence we enter when we come to worship? Or as I said a couple of weeks ago, if you're in the parking lot and you say, I hope that this week they don't sing that stupid song they sang last week. I didn't find anything encouraging about that at all. Then you have to ask yourself, so who did you come to worship? Him or you? We're only going to finish the race well. We're only going to run the bell lap well if we remember that our God is a consuming He's a purifying fire, but he destroys all the dross. Everything that has no eternal lasting value will ultimately be destroyed. I have good news for you. Megan Erickson actually got to run in state. She was disqualified, as was the girl that she helped, but her team got third place, and they went to state, and she got to join them. When your family and friends gather on that inevitable day, when they celebrate the life you lived, that one undeniable reality they will recall is this one question. How did she run? How did he run the bell lap? You see, it's really not about how you start the race, but it's all about how you finish. So for heaven's sake, by the amazing grace, Let them say about you and me, they finished well.